0: Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson.
1: I'm Mary Kilpatrick.
0: Andrew Tobias is out this week, but thank you for joining us. As always, special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for letting us record here and making this podcast possible. And be sure and check out our first two episodes. Uh, episode number one with former Ohio Republican Party chairman Matt Borges and last week's episode with 538 senior politics reporter Claire Malone. They were... Uh, both pretty good conversations, if I do say so myself. This week, we sat down with former Cleveland mayor, former congressman, and current Democratic gubernatorial candidate Dennis Kucinich. Uh, Mary, I'm curious, what did uh, what did you make of the interview?
1: Talking to Dennis Kucinich is a really lovely and pleasant experience. In person, he is the most like effervescent, like lovely individual. Um, I bet he's a great lunch date. Um, He's lived a lot of experiences, seen a lot of things, and thought deeply a about a lot of different issues. And and whether you agree with him or not, um, he's an interesting guy to talk to. Um, and he's he's just lived a lot of life. I mean, to be in politics for as long as he has and continue to reinvent himself over and over again, finding himself in local government, finding himself, uh, you know. Uh, statewide finding himself uh, at the federal level uh, he's he's seen a lot and uh, he, it, was, it was really neat
0: <laughs> yeah he's got he, I mean he has enough stories that you could fill just a podcast about Dennis Kucinich I mean from both his time growing up poor to transitioning to being a city councilman by the time he was 23 to being mayor of Cleveland at 31 to his time in between I mean he's he he has stories on top of stories, and I think that's what makes him one of the most interesting characters in Ohio politics. That you know, there's a long history of people who are interesting in the state, and they rarely come just with as many stories as Kucinich does. I mean, you know, you, if you go to a party, you're probably going to listen to his story, whether it's about you know the Muni Light deal, or whether it's about the mob putting out a hit on him, or whether it's about, you know, his time in the desert. I mean, he's he's got something interesting to say, that's for sure.
1: Or running for president twice. I mean, you know, there's so many different chapters of his life. You know, you you could talk to Dennis Kucinich about his life for, for eight hours and still um, miss stuff, you know, so it's, it's uh, it was neat.
0: And with that, uh, let's go ahead and get to the interview with Dennis Kucinich. Now joining us on Ohio Matters live from the Cleveland Public Library is former congressman and former Cleveland Mayor Dennis Kucinich. Dennis, thank you so much for joining.
2: Uh, Thank you. It's good to be with you here at the library, and I've been looking forward to uh, this opportunity to chat and to share my uh, thinking with Cleveland.com's very large audience.
0: <laughs> so uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on here is you're you're kind of Cleveland and Ohio through and through. You know, born and raised in uh, Tremont, if I'm not mistaken, correct?
2: Well, uh, Carnegie Avenue, uh, twenty five nineteen, I think it was. Right now, it's the old uh, Cadillac. It's now a Cadillac showroom. Uh, but our house was right there, and like so many places I lived growing up, uh, they're gone. <laughs> you know, city changes, but I'm certainly a product of the neighborhoods of the city. You know, you know my family um, had, there were seven kids. I'm the oldest. I was the oldest of seven, and my folks had trouble finding rent as the family grew. You know, back in the 50s, uh, if, if you were renters, there would actually be ads in the paper that would say, okay, room, you know, rooms for rent, two children or one child, and if you had more, there was trouble finding place. So by the time I was 17, we lived in, 21 different places around the city, including a couple cars. So I, that's connected me in, with people's aspirations and their plight in a way that you know, I, I couldn't have, that wouldn't happen otherwise. I, I, because of my experience growing up in Cleveland, I, I really understand what people go through. And, and, and in some ways, the conditions today are much tougher for a lot of people. All, all over the state and all over the country for that matter.
0: That's actually what I wanted to kind of follow up on. How is, the, how is it different from, I think everybody has kind of a view of Cleveland and Ohio sort of back in the day, you know, when the river was still catching on fire and whatnot. That's, you know, it seems like an image that Cleveland especially is never going to be able to shed. But how exactly is, you know, Cleveland and the state as a whole different from what, you know, it was however many years ago? Well,
2: of course, the population has uh, changed considerably you know we're about half the size. You know one time we were the sixth largest city in America Uh, but what's happened is that the movement of industry out of Northern Ohio has caused uh, people to leave and now we're um, uh, at a point where the population I think is stabilizing about you know in Cleveland I think it's about 365, 370,000 and in Cuyahoga County it's over a million Uh, so there's there's some stabilization going on. There's an attempt to rebuild in the cities, which is good. There's an attempt to try to reclaim and restore properties that have been abandoned, very important. Uh, so, you know, we're at a point of a dynamic equilibrium where all the jobs that have lost and all the decline is being arrested, but now we have to move forward. And I'm, um, I would say that the neighborhoods of our community are, are still, and the churches are still the backbone of the community and the various ethnic groups that have stayed in and around Cleveland have been so important to maintaining uh, the uh, cultural connection uh, with the Cleveland area. And we still, you know, that diversity within the greater Cleveland area, we have over 120 different ethnic groups. That's our strength. That's part of the joy (laughs) of life in the community. So I'm, you know, I'm very um, optimistic about what's possible here, but you know, let's face it, the resources have been taken away, and particularly governmental resources. The state's taken money away from local government, taken away money from public schools, cha- reallocated uh, the revenues of the state upwards, so Cleveland in particular has been denied uh, the kind of resources that the state of Ohio has poured into other areas, and there needs to be some attention paid to our cities, and so that's part of you know what I know a governor can do for this area. You know, I, don't, I, I think it's been since 1982, since a Democratic governor was elected from the Cleveland area. Sounds about right. It's about, you know, Dick Celeste, I think, was elected in 82. It's like So we're talking 36 years. And, um, of course, I remember then, and, you know, I'm, I've waited my turn.
0: We also know that you used to be a plain dealer copy boy. And uh, you have any fond memories of uh, working at the Plain Dealer? Everything.
2: Oh my God! I mean, I could write books, do a TV series. I I, I grew up at the Plain Dealer, and the old it would seem like the a page out of the Ben Heck days of journalism. The you know the the rumpled, coffee stained, uh, uh, ink stained wretches who would uh, populate the city room and. And create the and breathe in the tempo of life in the city and and the and, and what a place it was for a young person who could actually uh, uh, have have the fingers on the pulse of the city. You know, I was answering phones. I was I was I was the plane dealer. I was answering phones. <laughs> I was answering phones in the city room, and to be able to get. I hear the, the medley of voices coming from all over Cleveland where they'd be telling you information about one thing or another. You really got a sense of the community and the vitality of the community. It was alive and electric. And, and to have the experience of that as someone who was 18 years old. And uh, I got my first job in a city room uh, in, in uh, August of 1964. But before that, I worked in a sports, playing to their sports room. There was a sports editor then by the name of Gordon Cobbledick, who walked in uh, into the sports uh, room every day with a princely demeanor. He looked like a, a, or a cardinal of the church. He, was, he had that bearing. And uh, a, a college sports writer by, uh, editor by the name of Ed Shea, who then was involved in high school, hired me as a part-timer. And uh, so I did rewrite. I rewrote sports uh, stor- uh, stories people would call them in. And i do high school and college sports summaries. I loved it. It was great. And so the Plain Dealer City Room job opened up to be a copy boy, took it in a heartbeat. I would work from um, uh, 5 until 2.30 in the morning when the, I think it was the five-star final came out. And, um, but from 7 in the morning until 4 o'clock, I was a surgical technician at St. Alexis Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I worked two jobs full time. And you know, and sometimes I'd come into the into the newsroom with a tip about somebody who you know had some unfortunate thing happen. They wheeled them into the into the emergency room. That was before the days of uh, of HIPAA and you know health privacy. But <laughs> just for the record, uh, covering all the bases here. And uh, uh, but I worked two jobs full time. But the I wanted to be a reporter. I worked. I loved working, uh, running copy back and forth from the police beat, and it was alive. I, and more than anything, I wanted to be a reporter. I, I was. I, I had this nose for, you know, kind of rat busting, where I'd sniff out, be able to solve crimes. You know, it's like maybe it was because my dad always bought these true detective stories. Out, okay, the, the magazines. But I, I had this ability to be able to look at stuff. There was a guy by the name of Bill Evans, Don Bean uh these are names in the pantheon of cleveland journalism and they were the they were brilliant police reporters and almost like detectives ed kissel was another one so i was just their copy boy and i would just i would go down there and i thought i want to be a police beat reporter or i want to be a sports reporter i want to be a general news reporter and uh i ran for city council while i was still at the plane dealer and then after i um i um I went for a job. I applied for a, a summer internship there, or, you know, to be on the staff during the summer as a reporter. And I was informed by uh, one of the uh, heads of the newsroom that uh, the then editor of the plane dealer, uh, Mr. Vail, who I have a great deal of respect for, said that politics, because I'd already run for council, that politics and journalism didn't mix. It took me years to understand that they. Didn't mix at the level of a copy boy or a reporter, (laughs) but I loved working at the PD. I mean, it was you know, I I I left there because I got a job at the Wall Street Journal, which paid twice as much. (laughs) Hello, but yeah, those were great days, and I'm not kidding. I could I could write a book about it, and it's full the the colorful figures who were there at the time, just incredible.
1: You know, obviously, you ran for office at a very young age. You were elected to Cleveland City Council at the age of 23. I mean, what motivated you to enter public life so early? I mean, it was the 60s, and I'm sure there were plenty of fun things to do at the time.
2: Well, you know, most children, when they grow up, get blocks to play with or different toys. I was given a ballot box. <laughs> and uh, and I, I got, you know, when I, I had a sense when I was a young person growing up, going to, you know, various Catholic schools in the Cleveland area where I actually worked in scrub floors to pay my book bill and my siblings' book bill so we could go to Catholic school, uh, I had a sense early on that my life didn't belong just to me, that, that it was, um, that there was something about a responsibility that I had to community. It was, you know, it it, it was like a spiritual responsibility that you can't just make your life only about you. It's about others. It's about community. It's about serving. And so from a very early age, I was imbued with this sense of service, whether it was serving mass at St. Peter's, Holy name St. Al's, St. Coleman's, and some of the other parishes that I attended, or whether it was... um, working with people at the school to on various projects or carrying groceries from an A and P for people, you know, in exchange for a few coins or shining shoes or, you know, there's always an element of service. So as I I grew up, the chance to serve publicly started to you know, I started to think about it. When I was in the tenth grade I I wrote an autobiography uh, from an English class at St. John Kantus High School. Where I actually, and I still have this, Seth, I, I wrote a, um, uh, an autobiography where I said that I envisioned a life in public service, and that, um, and I actually predicted when I was in the 10th grade that I'd be, in, that I'd be a congressman someday. I kind of knew it. I knew that I'd be serving. When I was 16 years old, I was walking with my best friend down Pearl Road one night after, uh, uh, you know, we just took a long walk from the inner city of Cleveland out to his place in Parma Heights. And I had an intuition. I, can't, I, I don't know, you know if any of you have ever had this happen, but, but you just get kind of like an, an, a moment of intuition where I knew at age 16 that I would be mayor of Cleveland by the time I was 30. I knew it, it and I had this understanding, but it's one thing to have this understanding, but it's another thing to take the journey, the journey that is you know, not direct, a journey which is the unfolding of the aspirations to be of service, so that you 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 make your life about helping others, and and you don't know how that's going to turn out. So here I am, many years later, having had forty separate occasions to present my credentials to the people. Um, Counting primaries and generals. And I've won 32 of those. And my, uh, so there, there's a, 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 like a contract that you have to have with the voters where they, they see that you, you deliver, you say what you're going to, you, you deliver and you, you do exactly what you say you're going to do. And you realize, in, you know, in the long road of life that in the end, it's not about you. It's about others, it's about service to community, it's about uh, not being afraid to stand up, speak out, to really get a sense of, uh, of one's purpose in life. So my arrival as in, in public life came from a developing sense of awareness and purpose that my life did not belong to me but, the, but that I was a product of a community process and that I had to, I, if I was to lead, I had to first serve.
0: If I am not mistaken, one of your uh, kind of political role models back in the day was Cleveland Mayor Tom Johnson, right? Well, very much so. How did you try? Did you try to model off of what he did, or how he was a mayor, or I guess how he got elected mayor, or did you just find that your two's politics kind of matched up from the get go?
2: Well, Mayor Johnson was an inventor, an entrepreneur. Uh, he was a um, you know he he was he was a, a millionaire who. You know, so he and I had a, let's say, a, a different economic class that we came from. But what he did, though, he was a firm believer in social justice and having an economic system that that um, that enabled social justice to be accomplished. He was a, 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 a devotee of Henry George, who was um, a person who talked about a, a single tax approach. Um, based on property tax and, and really real wealth, uh, land-based wealth. And he had a real sense about the importance of public service facilities. Here's what he said back, I think, in 1901. He said that, uh, I believe in, in public ownership of all municipal service facilities, of, um, of, of utilities, of roads, of parks, of waterworks, Because if you do not own them, they will in time own you. They'll corrupt your institutions and destroy your liberties. Now, that's an abridged version of what he said back in 1901. But as mayor of the city of Cleveland, he established a public transportation system, a streetcar system, three-cent fare. And he did something else that impacted my life later on. He set the stage for the establishment of Cleveland to own its own municipal electric system. And he had a battle royal with the established interests at the time in doing that and fought corruption and fought uh, uh, the big law firms and the private utilities who wanted a monopoly. But he set the stage for breaking that monopoly. It was, the promise was delivered uh, finally by the mayor, who, um, uh, by, by Newton D. Baker. But Tom Johnson, whose statue is on public square here, had a sense of, of civic purpose, in in a way, you know that. So throughout American history, his his uh, memory serves as um, as a as a touchstone for the reinvigoration of the public realm, uh, of public um, of, of of public ownership, of the people's right to have schools and utilities and parks and roads that they can call their own. And so, uh, and because that's the essence of democracy. But what's happened in the intervening years is this massive privatization that's gone on where cities, counties, and even state services are chopped up and sold at the highest bidder, and the public ends up paying a second time for it in terms of increased fares and the public pays in terms of, workers who get their salaries cut, Tom Johnson set the stage. So when I became mayor of Cleveland, and amidst this battle to try to uh, sell the municipal electric system, I felt a real obligation to that legacy of Tom Johnson that then we're talking about a, a, a period of 75 years from, from Tom Johnson until I was at the threshold of the, 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 the mayoralty in Cleveland to keep the faith, of, of what it means to have a government in the public interest, to operate in the public interest, only in the public interest. He did that, and um, and so I, Muni Light ended up being this archetypal battle. It was uh, it, it was a it, it was a deadly fight to preserve just this electric system that just worked to survive. That was Tom Johnson's dream. It was my responsibility to keep faith with that, and I did. And I, so his. So yes, he is a very important part of, um, of my political inheritance, of my f- political philosophy, and, and that, uh, those matters are relevant today, and as someone who's running for governor, you know, our, our, we have hashtag power to we the people, I come from that place philosophically. I come from that place as a matter of action, as a matter of integrity, as a matter of a willingness to stand up and speak out without worrying about whatever, whatever interest groups would happen to be affected. So Tom Johnson, thank you. I love you.
0: get capital letter it's the must-have daily read for state house happenings five mornings a week cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct timely information it's perfect for people businesses and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers the governor and all of state government from breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda if you're not getting capital letter you're missing out For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash c-a-p-i-t-o-l-l-e-t-t-e-r. Of course, we talked to Dennis about his time as mayor of Cleveland. He's probably most famous for that. He was known as the boy mayor of Cleveland, elected at 31. And the city itself and Dennis went through a really trying time for really just two years. Here's more from our conversation with Dennis Kucinich. You're famous both for your time as a congressman, probably more recently your time as a congressman, but also for being the mayor. Uh, you were also the youngest mayor ever of a major American city. Oh, yeah. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how do you feel like you got to that point where you were a what, 31-year-old male, right. mayor, if I'm I, Yeah, 30, 31, right. Yeah. How, did, how did you get to that point?
2: Growing up in a city, uh, a sense that there were things that needed to be corrected, people needed to be represented, they needed a voice, they needed someone to stand up and speak out. I got in the council. I learned how. I learned about the city, and I thought, you know, there's government doesn't have to be this organized. Uh, government doesn't have to be corrupt. But you could say government doesn't have to be corrupt, but you can't do anything about it if you're part of that system. If you have bought into the way to get into office and you're taking contributions from interest groups whose interests are inimical to your constituency only because you want an office. So I took a different path, which was very independent. And because I took an independent path, it put me on the threshold of being able to run for mayor simply because I organized opposition to the sale of the light system, which, by the way, had already been completed. You can go back into the Plain Dealer archives and look in 1976 in March, sale of Muni light, done. And yet, I I have this view of life where when someone says there's nothing you can do about it, it's over, that's when I get involved. Because I look at that moment as, I, I look at life as being very creative, at political circumstances as being more malleable than people could think, and I look for those entry points to change the outcome. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. And so with Muni Light, I, I saw the opening. I sat at the top of my steps on Milan Avenue under a, under a s- single yellow light without, you know, a shade. And I just sat down there after Muni Light had been sold and I wrote a program to stop the sale. And I executed it perfectly with the help of, you know, then hundreds of people. I knew that I needed to run for mayor in order to not just save this electric system, but to give the people of Cleveland a chance to have a mayor they could call their own. So again, hashtag power to we the people. It was all about empowerment. It wasn't about me. Yes, I'll tell you, to be mayor, I was the youngest mayor of any major American city at the time. And afterwards, after the show, I'll show you a picture of what I looked like at the time. I look back and I probably looked like I was about 16 16. And I can tell you when some of the people would come in to meet me from out of town, they would walk into the office. This this happened so often initially. And I'd be sitting at this desk, and I knew they were looking for the mayor. They saw some kid sitting at the desk, but no, that couldn't be the mayor. He's too young. And so what I know from remembering that time is don't don't underestimate young people because, uh, you know, and I, I had several young people in my cabinet there are so many uh, young people who are capable of serving at levels in government, particularly at a community level. And you know, I got the chance, and I gave others the chance. And so, yes, uh, being a young mayor was challenging. There, you can look in the Plain Dealer archives and see some of the cartoons that were drawn of me. Uh, you know, with with blocks. You know, it's spelled Kucinich, of of me in sleep in a bed with the city fathers looking over the crib while there was a mobile spinning around, and they're just talking about. This baby who has, uh, you know, hope he gets some good sleep. And, uh, you know, the stereotype was there. But I pushed past that because I had work to do.
0: Were those years um, rough at all?
2: Uh, rough because there were three assassination attempts. You could call that rough. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've written a book about the whole Muni Light experience. Uh, it's taken me years to write it. I finally finished it thanks to the Democrats chopping up my congressional seat, I was given several years away from public life that I could spend time writing a 600-page book with about 3,000 footnotes about the story and the saga of Muni Light in the city of Cleveland back then. But um, uh, was it dangerous? Yes, of course. Uh, Did I falter in the face of danger? No, because... You know, I, I come from a spiritual perspective. You can't you can't walk in fear and faith at the same time. You you have to be ready in the, in the words of the poet Shelley to defy power which seems omnipotent, and uh, and that's as he wrote in Prometheus Unbound the uh, the path to being joyful, joyous, free. You know, that's kind of the way I live.
1: You know, we, we read that the Cleveland Mafia put a hit out on you at that time. Um, I, I can't imagine what that would have been like. I mean, how did you find out you were marked and, and what went through your mind? I mean, that has to be, I can't imagine.
2: You know, there's a psalm that many of us are familiar with because I think it's probably played in churches of many different denominations uh, Be not afraid. I go before you always, and i I have always had a spiritual center that has um, been a source of encouragement and um, not to uh, not to fear um, and so you know yeah I, I i never I will tell you I never talked about it at the time because you know, first of all, because as a practical matter, you've got professionals out to kill you. You don't want to talk about it because you don't want to encourage the amateurs. <laughs> for real, you know, because you just don't want to create that climate. But I knew about it. I knew exactly what was going on. And we had to have, you know, extra details that would follow me, and I had to take different routes. I couldn't go and eat where I'd usually eat at Tony's Diner for a while. And um, there was... Um, and, and I'll tell you, it's only the grace of God that I survived that term. I'll give you one example. In October of 1978, I think it was October 13th, something like that, 14th, I was supposed to be the grand marshal in a parade on the east side. And I, had, I, I was scheduled to have breakfast with Carl Stokes, who was then a broadcaster in New York, former mayor. He and I became very good friends. Carl was coming over the house. I was sitting in my upstairs study waiting for him, uh, to meet him on Milan Avenue. And, uh, and keep in mind, we already had the threats that were out there. Police intelligence reports were coming in from different states. And I'm sitting in this chair, in this rocking chair, and suddenly I pass out. I wake up, and the, and, and the room's covered with blood. I'm covered with blood. My lap, everything, blood. I had no idea what was going on. And um, my, my wife was yelled downstairs to Carl, please come up. So Carl Stokes came up. And I, I was, I, I mean, I was literally bleeding to death. I, and he picked me up. He had, a, you know, this immaculate suit on, didn't matter. He picked me up and, and took me into a bed. Meanwhile, the ambulance arrived um, and rushed me over to Hillcrest Hospital. It turned out that I had a, a bleeding ulcer uh, that had just exploded. And I I had lost, uh, they did a total transfusion. I transfused with six units of blood um, to, you know, as it was bleeding. They finally arrested the bleeding. And what we found out, and what I found out a day later, is that had I been in the um, the parade, which is supposed to be a a parade sponsored in, in a black community called Post Parade, had I been in that, that there was an or, that was one moment when this organized crime plot for a, to, to assassinate me was supposed to be executed. So in other words, my life was saved, but still put in jeopardy because it was very, it, I was really in danger. And, uh, and yet um, this plot was unfolding, and an organized subcommittee on organ, organized crime in the Midwest actually had a, reported this and had testimony. Uh, from a guy by the name of John Sopko, who is now uh, a major um, uh, person uh, for um, investigating government corruption. So, uh, do I? Do I feel that um, I've I've been blessed? Absolutely. I mean, do you know you? When you realize that your life has been spared, even as it's in jeopardy, you realize there's something else at work here. And um, and having come through that period, and there's more stories which you'll, people can read about when the book's finally out. You know, I I, I, re- I really uh, realize that um, you know I've been given an opportunity to serve, and I when I've seen the chance to move forward to do that, I do that because my my life has always been about service, and I feel fortunate to be here. I mean, there's you know other things could have happened. I, I I'm it it's really it was an extraordinary turn of events and i um um i i live every day with a grateful heart
0: so during that time you uh, you butted heads with cleveland council president uh, george forbes a little bit right a little bit you two are pretty good friends though nowadays we're very good you? friends how did uh, you know how, how did that come about i mean going from you know butting heads constantly to you know having lunch or whatever you guys do now not
2: just lunch george george uh, George and I are, are friends and at a family level. You know, we've visited each other's homes. You know, when any of us are in conflict, whether it's personal relationships, you know, inside the house, you know, husband and wife or whatever, you know, the conflict can become very serious. And when you're in a political conflict, it can become, you know, the, uh, every day is like showdown at the O.K. Corral, okay? And George uh, was a brilliant politician, maybe, maybe the most gifted politician that I have ever met. And so I, you know, when I encountered him, he's very skilled and he's a little bit older and traveled a few more miles than I had and really understood the system. And he was devoted. He was the, he was the downtown business community's go-to guy which was really extraordinary considering the prejudice that was out there then. But George Forbes was, was you know, their, their political force. And so we locked horns repeatedly. What was it like? Tough, because he's smart and skilled. And so we, we were in constant combat. Well, look, one must never... Become personal in these things. Can't do that. So when I, when I finally left office and had a chance to think about all my experience when I left City Hall, I realized that George Forbes was one of my great teachers, really. And the only way I could get to that lesson is not to judge George for his politics or anything else, but to see the, the man and the master behind all, you know, all of his moves. And when I came to understand that, you know, we started to have contact, and we, you know, we, over the years, became very close friends. And we'd laugh about it, it's because there is, only those who have been like combatants can, afterwards, you know, if you really understand life, you can sit down, have dinner together, you can laugh about it, but at the same time, uh, it's about growing as a person, and the life lessons I've learned, is that do not make enemies. Do not look at someone as an enemy. Look at them as a potential friend. Don't ever close the door to try to rebuild relationships. Don't polarize. Don't judge people. Don't categorize people. See what binds you. Look for the underlying unity. There is, because there is unity, there is power in diversity, there, there, there is a, an opportunity to connect with people on a personal basis, and you always have to be open to that. So he's been a great teacher in that regard, and, um, and the lessons that I've learned have enabled me to be able to reach out to constituencies that others, others couldn't imagine and be able to talk to anyone about anything because I don't judge people. It's not my job. People don't need to be judged. They need to be loved. They need to be appreciated. And while I always, I don't shy away from debates or discussions or taking a position, I'm I'm always aware that, uh, that God resides in that other person as well. And you cannot ever try to assume that the other person is somehow beyond the grace of God because that... You can't get to that point because it arrogates oneself and it also diminishes someone. And the only way that you can really build a relationship is through understanding the implicit co-equality. And that's true in a relationship. And and it's true, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, personal home life, and it's also true in politics.
0: So a lot of your actions during your time as mayor have been criticized. Some people still take issue with the Muni light battle, but a lot of that I think has been vindicated. Uh, there's firing your police chief on, you know, uh, on the airwaves.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I will tell you, know, if anybody asks me, not a good idea to fire your police chief at 3 o'clock on Good Friday. Not a, not, that was not a good idea. What made you,
0: what made you think to do that?
2: No, I wasn't thinking about the timing. I was, I was outraged that he had basically made some charges that I knew were ridiculous, and so I kind of, um, you know, there's a, There's a a Yiddish proverb that says, to a worm and horseradish, the whole world is horseradish. Okay, well, I was, you know, City Hall was my jar of horseradish then, and I forgot about the outside world for a moment, (laughs) you know, lost a little bit of perspective. I could have got through that easily, but I just, you know, look, you, you live and you learn.
0: It's interesting. I found a New York Times article from 1993 that had, Historians rate the best and the worst mayors in uh, the country in history uh, Tom Johnson was actually ranked second best. Absolutely.
2: He should have been number one
0: and you were ranked the seventh worst <laughs> well, um, you, know,
2: you know, but let me tell you about that Seth, you know, I the people of Cleveland had other ideas because in nineteen that was 93 in 94 you look at the votes I received out of the city, I was the only Democrat who beat a Republican incumbent in a statewide race in 1994. In 1996, the people of Cleveland elected me to my first of eight terms in the, uh, in the uh, uh, greater Cleveland area. Uh, so what does that say? What it says is that what people understood, particularly back in 1993, you can look at an article that was written by Ben Marison uh, when the uh, city of Cleveland decided that they were going to expand their municipal electric system and at that point everyone realized that I had made the right decision. Now that that awareness hadn't gotten to the people who were doing the ratings of what, what's a good mayor or not. I could care less about that but the people in Cleveland came to an understanding that I put my career on the line when I, when I said no to the sale of muni Light, when Cleveland Trust said you either sell or we're going to put the city into default, I said no to Cleveland Trust. They put the city of Cleveland into default, kept the city in the cle- of Cleveland into default, even though I had offered numerous different ways to pay off the city's debt. The only, the only currency they wanted was the municipal electric system. So when the people of Cleveland realized that I made a decision that would save them hundreds of millions of dollars as measured even up to 1993-94, what they would, what, what was said at that time is, Dennis, where are you? Because I had basically gone out, you know, off the scene, and so there was a call for me to come back, and that call uh, gave me the opportunity to go uh, to get elected to the state senate, and then to uh, go onto Congress by by the choice, uh, by, by the choice of the people of the Cleveland area. So, so my. Um, you know, I let the people of Cleveland be the judge of my qualifications for office, not newspapers from out of town, not, uh, you know, some uh, university type who has no clue of what actually happened in Cleveland. The people of Cleveland know, and as a result of that, and I might add, as a result of having people working with me who served the public when I was in Congress, you know, we handled 12,000 cases per year, and you, you you know, which— when you think about it, there's very few people whose lives we haven't touched, you know, in over the past few decades. So the public service and, and the service individuals has put me in a position where I have a rock-solid constituency here. Like, uh, and, and it's not because of personality, it's not because of, of political party, it's because— People know that I'm for them. And, again, it's about power. When I say power to we the people, I've lived it, and people know that about me. They know I can't be bought. They know, I, they know that I'm someone who's fearless, and they know that I take care of the people who elect me. So that, that's, that is probably, you know, in the primary election and in the general election, it's probably going to be why I have a pretty good chance to be the next governor of Ohio.
1: You know, when you look at your tenure um, as Cleveland mayor, how would you evaluate it? Would you do anything differently now?
2: Well, uh, you know, there is this thing that we all have in life about, you know, what would we do differently? The fact of the matter is we can't recut the past. We can only learn from it. My first year in office, I reduced city spending by 10% and, and improved city services. Why? Because there's some dimension of government which is a racket. Where government exists only to provide for the economic benefit of a few. And I changed that, okay? And I made government work for people, and I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the fact that I stood up and uh, um, and defended the people's right to have uh, their own electric system and to have control of city government. I'm very proud of that. and. Uh, did I make mistakes? Of course, are you kidding? You, you, who plays errorless ball i mean it 's not even possible. Uh, would I do anything differently? No, Did I learn from my mistakes? Yes, uh, is there um, uh, do the people of Cleveland know that I was their mayor that that at the end they could call me the people 's mayor because I actually belonged to them, came from the community, and was uh, not anybody 's boy or puppet so um, you know, I to me it was an honor to serve. I mean, uh, that the job of mayor of the city of Cleveland is the greatest honor that you can have in this community, and I and I uh, I take it as a um, as a badge of honor that I had the opportunity to serve um, for two um, brief years that at a time seemed like an eternity. <laughs>
1: I think it's. I think you know. We should point out that you know many of your critics agree now with the Muni like decision and, and yeah. view Cleveland Public Power as an asset to the city. You know, I'm curious. What do you make of Cleveland's leadership today?
2: It's a tough job being mayor of, of the city, and you know Frank Frank Jackson does his best. I've known Frank for decades, and he came out of the projects. Uh, he he has a sense of, of the street. Uh, I, I saw him. Um, uh, over at uh, one of the rec, at the Lonnie Burton uh, Rec Center a, a couple of weeks ago, when he was uh, there to celebrate the life of, uh, of of a community person who dedicated himself to helping the children, uh, f- that's where Frank comes from. He's got you know the times are different. You know the city's about you know almost almost half the size today of what it was w- when when I was mayor of Cleveland. And his challenges are different. The cities doesn't have the same resources. The city has a lot more social problems. Um, there's a lot more poverty today, childhood poverty uh, in the city. And frankly, there's 95 places in Ohio, uh, according to Rich Exner's uh, research that he's published. Ninety-five cities in Ohio where the poverty rate goes between 25 and 60 percent child poverty when you think about that You go back to the city of Cleveland, which I think it's probably over 30 for sure maybe approaching a third or more You know he, the mayor has the resources, but you can't control everything you took a look at the level of violence in, in a community You know cleveland.com is reporting it all the time. You, you know you can almost look every day There's a shooting there's you know somebody gets hurt and how do you control that? You know, you can try to do the best you can. You can try to have public safety, but there's the, the society itself is a, somewhat different. And what I think that I could do as, as a governor is to work with local communities to address the issues of violence by starting with programs that would be funded to look at domestic violence, spousal abuse, violence, in the schools, gang violence, gun violence, racial violence, violence against gays, police community clashes. And, you know, I, I have to tell you that communities have to have the ability to make their own laws. When you see a community like Cleveland that tried, for example, to get an assault weapons ban, only to have it slapped down by the Supreme Court without, you know, really getting uh, the, the help help they needed, I mean, why, why shouldn't communities which are stressed on these safety issues, be able to have some ability to control their own fate. So where a mayor has that ability, he can do better. And, and again, you know, I look forward to working with Frank Jackson and all the mayors of this state. There's one big area. You know, the, the, the current administration in Columbus changed the local government funding. And they have, they have cut in total over, a, you know, a billion dollars a year out of local communities you know whether you're city or suburban mayor you have you have lost the capacity to be able to get the revenue that you're used to getting from the state of ohio so what happens the the, the the police fire you know health uh and and other social services have been cut in city after city and then in some places in smaller towns people have had to combine services because of the state's action well you know guess what I am going to change that. That is, and I'll you know go into in greater detail about how uh, during the campaign. But th- it's outrageous what's happened. How they take money out of local communities and what happens? They restructure the finances of the state so they give the money to people who don't need it. Uh, that's going to change.
1: dennis uh left office uh, as cleveland mayor he went through kind of an interesting time and it's interesting when you read about dennis kucinich uh you read things like he was you know the one of the youngest mayors uh, of a major city ever you know for two years in cleveland and then he left office and then he became a state senator and then he became a uh congressman um but there are about 15 years in between uh, the time that he left office as Cleveland mayor and uh, got back into sort of the political gain. And I, I think that's interesting. You know, people don't really talk to him about that. And he really, um, he really went through a lot and, and grew a lot uh, during that period. Uh, I, I, we asked him about it. I, I thought it was really interesting.
0: And now more from our interview with Dennis Kucinich. So the interim years between when you were a mayor, or when you were the mayor, I should say, and when you were a congressman, they seem to kind of get glossed over in the Kucinich story. You know, everyone talks about he was the mayor and then he was the congressman, but there's about 15 years in there, if I'm not mistaken, where you were, uh, you were still active in politics.
2: Yes, but um, it's funny, Seth, out of uh, every interview that I've done since I've been mayor of Cleveland, you're the only one who's ever asked about that. Now let me tell you the significance of it. I was thirty to thirty-three years old when I met when I left the mayor's office. The the environment that was created at that time blamed me for the default. You know, it just I had I had, quote, ruined unquote the city of Cleveland, which, you know, was a perfectly was a perfect city before I took office, and um, and it was pretty devastating. I mean, think about this. You know, any of your listeners, think about what happens. When we've all, a lot of people have this experience where you know you're doing what's right, where you put yourself in a line, and you get condemned for doing it. I mean, real condemnation. Like I'd walk into a high school basketball game, and in the stands there would be people chanting "default, default, default," and um, I, I couldn't get a job in Cleveland. I was blackballed here. My wife and I came within uh, a payment of losing our home. Um, I had Muni light at the time. I almost had the electric system, <laughs> the Muni light service to our house cut off. We, 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 you know, I had one year where I think my income was, you know, I netted maybe a hundred bucks or something. It was, it was devastating, personally. I paid a price for taking this stand. And so what happened is I went on a spiritual journey, a very deep spiritual journey, like going out into the desert, but it was more than 40 days and 40 nights. It was years. I had no idea if I'd ever be able to have a career again in government or politics. I I, we had trouble getting a job. I, you know, here I was with a master's degree from Case Western Reserve, you know, honored at one point for being one of their top students in the program's history in speech and communications, and I couldn't get a job. And so, um, a regular job. And so, um, I had to go within. I had to go, I went on a spiritual journey and spent a lot of time in prayer and meditation and trying to find, um, you know, how do I put myself back together after this, extraordinary shattering that took place, because I will tell you, nothing is more shattering than to feel that you did the right thing, not politically, but the right thing for people, and then to get blasted for it, and to have that then become part of of the narrative going forward. So, you know, I, I went through this process, and for anyone who's ever been through a process of reflection and rebuilding, uh, you can only do it spiritually. There is no other path, none, to be able to approach this. So I emerged from that with, uh, with an unshakable faith, with, uh, uh, with uh, ever more resilience, uh, an ability to take a stand, and with, uh, with a sense of calm about it. Not not worrying about you know what what might happen, just that uh, that whatever is going to be is going to be, and it'll all be well. And just uh, it's like um, um, the idea of um, of just walking in in faith and not fear. And I and I and, and I it, life unfolds slowly from that point. It's not you know in politics there's a false sense of time. Everything's go go go. But real life doesn't work that way. Real life moves slowly, and so I went from year after year of trying to find a way to put it together, and you know, it's uh, you know, I, I found myself. You know, I did some traveling. I was in uh, L.A. and and actually in MacArthur Park in, in L.A., and I heard that song going in my head about MacArthur Park is melting in the dark and all the sweet cream icing flowing down, someone left the cake out in the rain and it took so long to make it I don't think I'd ever have the recipe again. The idea that maybe I lost this, I, maybe maybe it's all destroyed. But there was another song that I used to have uh, encouragement from, from an old Simon and Garfunkel album called uh, Hazy Shade of Winter, where they say time, what's become of me, I look around at my possibility, it was so hard to please look around, leaves are ground. the ground." and uh, the, the sky is a hazy shade of winter, and then it says, hang on to your hopes, my friend. Hang on to your hopes, my friend. Mm-hmm. That, that's an easy thing to say. But if your hopes should pass away, simply pretend you can build them again. So part of that period was actually somehow pretending with hope against hope that i was going to be able to rebuild and you know what because i held that and and that idea that i'd be able to come back at some point because i held that space and because there was a spiritual um i i I protected that space spiritually it opened the door for a comeback
0: and when did you decide to come back and well, I believe you ran for state senate first, got a state senate seat, and then ran for Congress. Ninety-four.
2: And, well, I, I'll tell you, it, the pivotal role, you go back to this article that Ben Marison wrote, which uh, for the Plain Dealer, where it said something like Kucinich knew he was always right for saving muni lights, something to that effect. That Actually, that moment when the city decided they were going to expand the municipal electric system, where they recognized that the decision I made saved the uh, people hundreds of millions of dollars that it was the right decision, that it was, you know, there's a measure of vindication F- 15 years later, 14, 15 years later. That's what opened the door for a comeback. Um, you know, I, I, there's nothing I could have done to make that happen. The moment had to present itself, and at that point, people started to tell me, we want you to return. Now, now I did serve temporarily, you know, uh, served on an unexpired term in city council, for a two year period in 83. But that, you know, the, the, the dimensions of that were totally different to the state senate race was an extraordinary moment of a comeback. And when it happened, it, there was like this sense of, of transformation that had occurred to, to actually be lifted up. You know, again, going back to the psalm, the idea about, you know, uh, this, this song about, you know, being raised up on, e- on eagle's wings. You know, the, the idea of you're being lifted up, and it's not me. It's not about me. I'm always, oh, am I ever aware of that? Because when you start to think that you did this, oh, no, 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 no. I, I have a, an, an abiding sense uh, that if I, if I have a commitment uh, to, uh, to some sense of purpose, and, if, and, and if, there's, if, there's a, if it's part of a spiritual commitment to service, that, you, that that the opportunities will present themselves, but when you start thinking that it's you, that you're some great being or something, that's where you lose it. You, you cannot ever uh, start to think that, well, you know, I'm, I'm such a great guy. No, 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 I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have, been, I have had opportunities that have been extraordinary, and I've been given life lessons that have made me very strong and I'm still I'm still ready to serve. I'll tell you I feel I feel so much energy uh, a- as a result of, you know, including all this experience it doesn't hurt to be a vegan and I and and I I'm like physically as well as spiritually empowered. Feel stronger than ever and I have this sense of joy about it all. I don't worry about anything. Like, you know, <laughs> just let go and see what happens.
1: So, Dennis Kucinich ran for president twice. That's probably why he's known nationally, for sure. Uh, he was very, very outspoken about uh, the war in Iraq. When you talked to him about it, That's the main reason why he ran for president, in his mind, um, trying to campaign against the war. And when you sit down and you listen to him, he is still to this day. I mean, this is what, like 10 years, 15 years ago at this point. This is he's so passionate about this still. And I think it really translates. And I, I think it will be interesting to to look back, you know, what history shows about where Dennis stood on this issue.
0: And now more from our interview with Dennis Kucinich.
1: You know, you ran for president twice. I did. Why did you decide to do that?
2: Well, it started in, um, uh, right after 9-11. I went to the floor of the House, and I gave a warning. You look at the speech I gave right after 9-11. I gave a warning to the country about not going into, you know, not retribution, not be careful, let's try to find a way to get through this without accelerating into war and i and I while well, I voted for the u s to respond to what was an attack on our country, I also cautioned about pursuing a course that would be counterproductive. It's worth looking at that so as i i I, um, I found you know while I came to Congress to represent the Cleveland area on healthcare, on education, on workers' rights, I found that my time in Congress, right from the beginning, was spent challenging these wars, which have been so devastating, which have been based on lies, which have caused the death of so many uh, good young American men and women, which have cost the taxpayers at least six trillion dollars in the long run. And, And so I devoted my time to challenging the wars, okay, and I saw no one else was doing it. So I decided to step forward as a candidate for president to take on the war in Iraq. I have here a sheet of paper, just to describe, I'll describe it for your uh, listeners, where I have the number of speeches through, the f- through six congresses starting in, in uh, through 05 to um, uh, uh, forward. Uh, and I gave, in a period of six of eight Congresses, 341 speeches about why we shouldn't go into or why we should get out of Iraq. I gave 155 speeches about why we shouldn't have a war with Iran. I dedicated myself to trying to protect this country from going on a path of destruction, which would destroy not only other people in other countries, but which would destroy our country as well. So when the moment came to step forward, I said I had to run for president because there was no one else who was willing to take up this challenge. And I knew, knew definitively about what was wrong here. And I saw that, you know, every money, every dime that was spent on these on these wars was money being taken away from programs here in our community. That, that you know, it's not like we have a separate budget and— that the U.S. tax dollars that go for wars, are, well, that's just the military budget. No, that money keeps kept going up and up and up, and the money was being sucked out of local communities. And so you know, and it was, it, it's, the approach that we've taken, which now puts America with over 800 bases in about 130 countries, has been devastating for America. So yes, I took a position, I ran for president to stop the war in two thousand four and then when the democrats took over congress in two thousand six on a promise to end the war you can go back to the new york times look at an interview they did in october with rahm Emanuel in two thousand six he was running the democratic congressional campaign committee he was so surprised that there seemed to be a surge for democrats why to end the war but when the democrats came back to washington in november of two thousand six the first thing that was said was that we're going to keep funding the war. It was an enormous moment of hypocrisy and of betrayal. And so at that moment, I decided, wow, are you kidding? We just took back the House of Representatives on a promise to end the war, and we're going to keep funding it? Really? I said, nope, I'm going to have to do this again. Did I want to? No way. It's exhausting to run for president. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I, you know, you're going to 50 states, you're— Putting yourself out on the line, you know, I, uh, and, and at that point, the media hadn't picked up how rotten the war was, so that they looked at me as some kind of a interloper, like, what's, who's this guy coming out of Cleveland, who's he to run for president? I was the voice of the people who were crying out for a sane foreign policy, who wanted to take care of things back here at home. And everything that I said, you can look at any of these speeches, these, you know, almost 500 speeches that I gave over a period of six of eight congresses is probably 600 if you look at them all Everything I said turned out to be true And the thing that people know about me and I don't say this with any sense of ego at all Is I'm generally right when I take a position on this stuff why because I'm not looking to help anybody get contracts I'm not looking to improve my standing so I look like a tough guy because I'm standing for war no people know I'm right So I, you know, it breaks my heart to see the direction our country has gone in, how we've gone off the rails in search of uh, dragons to slay all over the world while we've let our quality of life erode here at home. And what I see as, you know, as uh, potentially the next governor of Ohio, I'm going to be in a position to, uh, you know, because I have this knowledge, because I can connect international policy with policy in the neighborhoods. There's nobody else in politics in American life who can do it in that way and who would be running for governor. So I'm, I'm ready to take all that I know, all that I have, all this experience, and pour it into the state of Ohio and be of service to people in the state. Uh, but I will tell you that I ran for president to end the wars. Would you ever run again? You know what, at this point, um, I, I can't say that it's anything that I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm, I'm very focused on this governor's race. Uh, what i learned from running nationally is you know the calculations that are involved in running for that kind of an office are you you can't calculate that it's just crazy so you know i'm i'm focused on things in ohio and this governor's race to me is everything uh in terms of where my intention and focus is i'll tell you something you know if you, just as a as a matter of um uh kind of an approach to life. If you start, if you're in a, an endeavor and you're not totally dedicated to that and you, you have other agendas, you, you dissipate your energy. You know, I'm, I'm focused totally, heart and soul, on, on this race for governor. Because I think, I think that a, the governor of one of the largest states in the country has a chance to take Not just the state, but by reflection, to have other states say, you know, we can do this differently. We can take a different direction. We can return the power of government to the people, and that's really what my candidacy is about. It's about empowering the people. It's about power to we the people is is the motto of the campaign, and it's about inclusiveness. My choice of running mate, Tara Samples, demonstrates that I get it. I, I, you know, America, America looks uh, uh, like our ticket. America has the aspirations that our ticket's energy uh, reflects. And so I, you know, that's where my focus is set. I'm, you know, my, everything is about this um, being of service to the people of Ohio. And if they, uh, if they, uh, and, and I'm showing in the campaign, by the way, the energy of this campaign, people are starting to feel it. I've only announced a week ago, and we've t- taken the campaign vertically. And I'm, I'm, I'm showing through the campaign that I'm ready. I'm ready to be governor. But it's up to the people if they're ready for the kind of dramatic change that that myself and my running mate will bring.
0: You know, I'm wondering why now? Why all, like uh, you've been out of politics, well, out of elected office, I should say, for six years right. now. Right. So kind of why now? Why come back to Ohio now? And do you think Ohioans are going to kind of accept you in I, I'm not coming back to Ohio.
2: I never left Ohio. You know, I'm, this is my home. And why now? When you look at the chaos that has swept our country, when you look at the fear that abounds throughout the land, when you look at the uncertainty that people are living with, where, they, where young people not knowing if they'll be able to either get into college, finish college, afford college, be able to pay their bills, people worried about whether they're going to go broke paying hospital bills, whether they're going to lose their home, whether they're going to go bankrupt because of an illness in the family. Um, you know, there's so many environmental issues that uh, relate to the quality of life in Ohio, the purity of the air and the water, infrastructure of the state deteriorating. Why now? Because this is the moment to move, emerge out of this chaos with principles of, of, of equality, of principles of governance that actually return government to the people, to show people that they actually, that, that someone is ready to stand to change the relationship between uh, the people and their, and their government. And because I have this experience, I, I'm ready to move forward at this moment. We're in a period of, of disintegration. we're in a period of um, things falling apart of the of you know in the words of uh, of, of Yeats and the second coming, you know of things of all things falling apart, the center not holding. But what I, what I can bring and what I will bring to the state is, is uh, to create cohesion, to create unity, to create a sense of um, of purpose again and to create a sense of community to get away from these divisions that make us so uncomfortable the rhetoric that makes us so uncomfortable to to be able to to recognize that there is something that unites us all spiritually Um, partisan politics is I'm not interested in it. yes I'm running for the Democratic nomination yeah but I would govern from inclusiveness I I I do not attack people because they happen to be Republicans I look to Republicans for for cooperation and, and guidance, Will we have differences, of course, but the approach that i that I take is made for this time, not polarizing, seeking consensus, working for unity, not looking at at people as being outsiders, but to look for taking the combined energies of people in Ohio and drawing on that to help help rebuild the state I, so why now? Because, I, you know, I'm ready. And if the people are ready, this is going to Ohio will start
0: to look different within, you know, in about a year. It's interesting you mentioned now being the time uh, I've personally described you as Bernie Sanders before Bernie Sanders, you know, two runs for office is, He has know, the really, really white populists. hair. I yeah. yeah. Your hair is much better than him. I'll <laughs> say you're better dressed, too.
2: Well, you know what? Uh, B- Bernie and I have known each other 40 years. He was a young mayor of Burlington. I was a young mayor of Cleveland. WE GO BACK A LONG WAYS. HE WAS CHAIR OF THE PROGRESSIVE CAUCUS. IN CONGRESS, HE ASKED ME TO TAKE THOSE RESPONSIBILITIES. WHEN I GOT TO CONGRESS, I SAID, let's, SURE, LET'S DO IT. Uh, WE HAVE WORKED TOGETHER. AND SO um, Bernie, uh, BERNIE AND I HAVE uh, SHARED THIS PASSION FOR PUBLIC SERVICE. Uh, DO WE AGREE ON EVERYTHING? No. A lot of things,
0: (laughs) but you've also got a little bit of Trump appeal. I mean, I've seen at least people say as much. You know, being against free trade before it was cool, I guess, so to speak, "quote unquote" cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the likes of that. And what I'm kind of curious about is, I've heard some progressives kind of irked by both your time on Fox News and some of your defense of the Trump administration. Uh, You know, you said the the deep state was trying to take Mm -hmm. down the Trump presidency. I'm wondering, you know, do you still think that, and how are you going to?
2: Let's go over that. Um, first of all, if you were to go back through uh, the log of shows where I would make appearance on Fox News, what did I talk about? Who else would go to Fox and talk about the importance of universal health care? Who else would go to Fox and talk about full employment economy? I mean, I, the Fox platform gave me a chance to reach out to a different constituency to show that there's some practical reasons to support uh, a different economic approach. So, you know, on Fox, I I would have no hesitation to challenge wars, to challenge um, uh, this um, uh, government spying on people. You know, and I, you know, I would say on Fox pretty much what I'd say on the floor of Congress, except that I had an opportunity to do this on a, on a big network. Now, you, you asked, and, and so to me, uh, there's a thing about, uh, called preaching to the choir. Now, if I'd been on M- MSNBC, I'd be preaching to the choir. But to be able to communicate with that audience at Fox was, it was a real important moment because it showed an ability to be able to reach and connect. And because of that, you know, this is one of the reasons why I, I could win this election, because I reach out to people, and I don't do it in a way, you know, you can, be, you can disagree without being disagreeable. You don't have to tell someone underneath the grace of God because they hold this position, you hold that position. And so what I learned was the things that connect us as Americans, what we, what's the underlying unity in America, because there is one. And I never got into the polarity there. But I did take positions. And sometimes, you know, whether it was Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity, you know, we'd go at it, but in a way that was respectful. So let's talk about Donald Trump and the deep state. Unlike most people in government, I never bought into the idea that whatever happens out of the Pentagon is right for the American people. I challenged, I already pointed out how I would challenge the war. In one presidential debate, I pointed out, when they talked about the Patriot Act. I was the only one on stage who actually voted against it. When it came to me to explain why, I said, because I read it. And whether you're talking about the Central Intelligence Agency, the State Department or the Pentagon, and foreign policy, the the lifers there and the think tanks that support the the lifers have an approach towards um, governance and towards America's role in the world which has nothing to do with the needs of the American people. It's like some kind of a multi-dimensional chess game where they, tr- in the name of America, try to knock off this government or that government, and they, they're, they're the government within the government. Does it exist? You bet it does. And Anyone who says it doesn't, doesn't know anything about Washington, never served in Congress, and has no clue. Now, when Donald Trump came in, was there a power struggle to try to take control of his administration? Absolutely. Are you kidding? It happens in every administration. And so um, uh, this idea—well, Cassandra's talking about the deep state, and you know it's crazy. Well, uh, excuse me—I spent 16 years inside Congress, working on a daily basis, challenging these bureaucrats who would try to get us into war, who would who would create uh, uh, events that would uh, uh, that would drag us into conflict. Who? who would uh, have their own way of looking at the world and try to impose that on the President of the United States. You remember, you know, when Donald Trump was running, it seemed that he would not continue these wars. I think that was part of his appeal. Uh, It seemed that he would not continue these trade agreements. So there were some things that he said that I happen to agree with, and I'm sure I wasn't the only Democrat who agreed with it, you look at the vote. But I have not hesitated when I didn't agree with him whether you know it 's on immigration and some of the other ones to speak that too, but what didn't I do i didn't rip him to pieces Now we all know about the president's rhetoric. We all know about his Twitter habits. I continue to describe a vision of America where it's inclusive, where we work together, where we remember who we are, where we remember the promise of the statue of liberty where we remember the historic journey that people have taken to this country from all over the world, where we, we look at other people with respect. This is who I am. This is who I am. And I, I don't, I'm not into trying to uh, describe another person, no matter who that other person is, whether it's the President of the United States or somebody who lives on my street. So, I say what I stand for. I say what my policies are. And that's the time I use when, you you know, I make an assessment. So uh, deep state, hey, let me tell you, if there's anyone out there that has the record that I have on foreign policy, I want to hear from them. And then they can tell me what they know. But I also know because I've been there. Because I've seen the games that have been played to keep America in these battles. And I was concerned when I saw some of those same interests try to get their clutches on a new administration, whether the name's Donald Trump or whatever. But... You know, yeah, I mean, I know how the system works in D.C., and that's another advantage I bring. I, you know, because I have this, this tremendous amount of government experience at a federal level in and in, in dealing with matters international, international, you know, conflict, commerce, uh, at, a, at a national level, being a spokesperson for—on on, health care, on workers' rights and education, at a state level, you know, my work in the state senate— Uh, on on a number of issues, has, you know, kind of given me an understanding not only of how state government works, but of what the potential is. My work as a mayor of a city, a city councilman, even a clerk of courts. I have legislative, executive, quasi-judicial experience at local, state, and federal level. I mean, you know, not not many people have that experience.
0: Dennis, I think that's about all the time we have for today. I really appreciate you stopping by, and I'm sure we'll see you out there on the campaign trail.
2: Me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. It's called Kucinich.com, hashtag power to we the people. Thanks for listening, and thanks for the interview.